But may surprise you to learn that as Jesus was comforting his disciples, preparing them for his departure, one of the ways that he comforted them was talking about the Trinity. Now, the reason why I say that might be surprising is because most of us, when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't think of it as a comforting doctrine. We think of it as a difficult doctrine, right? You may think, oh, that's the one that every time I try to think about it, I get a headache. I just can't get my mind around it. It's so deep and complex. And it is deep. And it is difficult to understand because there's nothing else like God. The one God who has always existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is hard in some ways to get our minds around. But it's also true that a basic understanding of the Trinity doesn't have to be difficult and can be quite comforting, reassuring. In John 14, which is where we'll spend our time this morning, Jesus is preparing his disciples for life after he has left. His crucifixion is mere hours away, and he knows what is going to happen. He is going to be betrayed. He is going to be crucified. And then he will rise from the dead on the third day. And then after spending 40 more days with his disciples, he will ascend into heaven where he will be seated at God's right hand. And that's where he still is today. So the time that Jesus was preparing his disciples for is the same time that you and I live in. The time between Jesus' departure and Jesus' return. And so the instruction and comfort that he provides for his disciples is also for us. So let's look together at John 14. We're going to start in verse 15, and I'll read down to verse 24. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the first thing Jesus says here to his disciples in these verses is that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. Now, everyone who is a Christian loves Jesus. Right? Now, you, you may feel like your, your love for Jesus kind of ebbs and flows. There may be times where you, you sense a, a deep love for Jesus, and there may be times where uh, you even doubt whether or not 
you truly love Jesus. But everyone who is a Christian does love Jesus. And one of the ways you can test yourself, if you're one of those who's sort of the the introspective type and, and prone to doubt your own feelings and emotions and prone to doubt your own love for Jesus, one of the ways you can test yourself is just ask yourself this question. If someone said to you, do you love Jesus? You, you might want to say, well, not as much as I should, or, you know, some days better than other. Do you love Jesus? Could you answer with a simple no? If not, that's a good indication that you do love Jesus. Now, think about your relationships with other people in your life, your spouse, a close family member, a dear friend. Do you always feel a deep love for that person? Not always, right? There are moments where that, those things ebb and flow, to, or you're just not thinking about it. And if someone springs a question on you, do you love so-and-so? Well, I mean, yeah, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't just sitting here and, you know, just overflowing feelings of, of love. But that's not all that love is. And that's not the only way that love shows itself, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, that doesn't mean you'll keep them perfectly. doesn't mean you'll always do everything Jesus says. Otherwise, nobody would qualify, right? But it does mean that one of the ways your love for Jesus shows itself is by what you do. That you desire to do the things that he says. Even when you fail to do them, you want to do them. You want to love your enemies. You want to... Pray. You want to love your neighbor. You want to be humble and kind and speak the truth as Jesus did. You want to follow his instructions. You fall short of that. You're often frustrated by the way that you fall short of that. But the tenor of your life is, I'm aiming to follow Jesus. I think about Peter as an example. Peter had a colossal failure, right, where he denied Jesus three times. Was that because he did not love Jesus? No. Because after Jesus rises from the dead and meets with Peter and speaks to Peter, what does he say to Peter? Peter, do you love me? And he asked him that three times. So nobody misunderstands why Jesus is asking the question. Peter, you denied me three times. I'm asking you three times, do you love me? Peter said, you. Lord, you know I love you. He had a colossal failure to honor Jesus in those moments, but it didn't mean he doesn't love Jesus. And we see that in the the pattern, the habit, the tenor of Peter's life as he seeks to do what Jesus says. That's true of us. It's true in all of life, right? That your love for anyone is going to show itself in what you do. Right? So a, a man who says he loves his wife, but never seeks to show it, and his, fact, his, his uh, actions seem to indicate the opposite. Nobody believes that guy. You can say it all he wants. But those you do love, you show your love for them by what you do, by what you say, by your actions. It's true not only in our relationship with Jesus, it's true everywhere. But it's especially true in our love for Christ. If we love Him, we will show it. John says elsewhere in 1 John 5, 
He says, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. That's how we show our love for Him, is by doing what He says in His Word. Now, in connection to that, Jesus talks about the gift of the Spirit that is coming after Jesus' death and resurrection. So, verse 16, He says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. So connected to loving Jesus and obeying Jesus is receiving this gift from Jesus of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift because he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is something that God gives us and Jesus calls the Spirit here another helper. Who's the... Who's the first helper? This is another one who was our helper before this. Well, Jesus himself, right? Jesus is leaving, but Jesus says, The Father will give you another helper, someone like me, who will come and be with you forever. Uh, John used the same word to talk about Jesus in 1 John 2.1 when he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate or a helper. It's the same word. A helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the Spirit who's going to come is a helper like Jesus. What's different about the helper, this helper coming, about the Spirit coming, is that Jesus says, This helper will be with you forever. Now Jesus, of course, had to leave. He's no longer physically present on the earth, right? After he died and rose, he ascended into heaven. He's not bodily, physically here anymore. And that's what his disciples were uh, so distressed about, right? That's what Jesus was preparing them for. You and I are used to it. But can you imagine if you had walked around with Jesus for three years, shared meals with him, listened to him teach in person, saw him perform miracles, and then after just three years, he said, okay, guys, I'm leaving. What? Why? Now what are we supposed to do? And so to encourage them and comfort them, Jesus says, the Father is going to send the Spirit who's a helper like me, but He's going to be with you forever. Not only that, He says that He's going to dwell in you. Verse 17, even the Spirit of truth, He says, talking about the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And then he says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now there's some discussion about what this means, but here's what I take this to mean. As Jesus was with his disciples, the Spirit had come upon Jesus, right? At his baptism, the Spirit descended from heaven in the form of a dove. The Spirit was with Jesus' disciples, as he was with Jesus, as they were with Jesus throughout his ministry. So the Spirit was present, the Spirit was at work. Whether or not they had recognized it, the Spirit had been at work around them and with them. But Jesus is telling them, soon, the Spirit is not just going to be with you, the Spirit is going to be in you. He's going to dwell in you. In you. This is going to be a significant change from the way things were before. 
This is what happens on the day of Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes down and the disciples begin preaching in all different kinds of languages and they preach the gospel about Jesus and people turn to Christ and they repent of their sin, they trust in Him and the Spirit begins to dwell in each and every one of them. But this was not always the way that the Spirit worked. In the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, up until the time of Pentecost, the Spirit would come upon particular people for a particular job, for a particular time. But the Spirit's presence in those people's lives was not necessarily permanent. The chief example of this is King Saul and King David. And the Bible says in uh, 1 Samuel 16, it says Samuel, who was a prophet, took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So the Spirit of God came upon David when he was anointed to be king. He's got a particular task. And so the Spirit has come upon this particular person for this particular time. But also when that happens, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul was the king before David. He'd been anointed king before David, and the Spirit had come upon him. But when the Spirit came upon David, the Spirit departed from Saul. And that's why David prays in Psalm 51 when he's been confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. One of the things he says in Psalm 51 is, he says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why does David pray that prayer? Why is David afraid that God will remove the Holy Spirit from him? Because it happened to Saul. And because if Saul deserved to have the Spirit taken from him for his rebellion against God, David probably deserves it too for his sin against God. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. But that's not the way it works now. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples is going to be different on the other side of his death and resurrection. And now the Spirit is going to dwell in them and be with them permanently. That's why he said in verse 16 that God will send the Helper to be with you forever. So in the New Testament we find statements like this in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, in him, that is in Christ, you also, talking to Christians... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, when you heard the gospel, when you believed in Jesus, when you trusted in him, Paul says, at that time, the Spirit of God came to dwell in you to seal you, marking you as belonging to God, to protect you, to authenticate you, right, as a real believer in Jesus, a genuine child of God. But not only that, he says, the Spirit in you is a guarantee, a down payment, as it were, of your inheritance, your full salvation that you'll receive at Christ's return. The Spirit in you is God's promise that you will receive everything Christ purchased for you on the cross. Because you don't have it all yet. We don't have it all yet. Are sins forgiven? Yes. 
Do we dwell in the presence of God? Not yet. Do we still sin? Unfortunately. But will there be a day when we don't? Absolutely. Will our bodies be raised from the dead? No longer to die and get sick and wear out, but be glorious, resurrected bodies fit to dwell in the presence of God forever? Yes. One day. And the Spirit in us is a guarantee of that future reality. And He's not leaving until that happens. That's what Jesus is promising. That's what Jesus is telling His disciples. That, too, is part of the good news of Jesus' departure. The reason He has to leave, the reason He has to die, the reason He has to rise, the reason He has to ascend to God's right hand is not only so that He can purchase the forgiveness of our sin through His death, but also so that He can secure for us the gift of the Holy Spirit and every other aspect of our salvation. So that everyone who trusts in Him, everyone who turns to Him, everyone who believes in Him, receives not only that forgiveness of sin, but receives the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of Him. That's why Peter says at the end of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, when he's preached about Jesus' death, He's preached about Jesus' resurrection. He says, you guys killed the Messiah, but God raised him up. God raised him to his right hand. Jesus himself is the one who's poured out the Holy Spirit today. And they hear this and it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're convicted of their sin. They want to know how to respond. And here's what Peter says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. In the Old Testament, that just wasn't the case. Not everyone who believed in God's promises received the Holy Spirit. Only certain people at certain times. For certain purposes. But now Peter proclaims to all and every, if you believe in Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever trusts in Christ, will receive the Spirit who will dwell in them. And Jesus begins now to comfort His disciples as He unpacks the significance of that promise. Because we have not even begun to understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying when He tells us that the Spirit is going to be in us permanently, dwelling in us. Here's how He begins to unpack that. Verse 18, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, that could be referring to the fact that Jesus is going to come back after His resurrection and see His disciples, but I don't think that's what He's talking about here. I think He's talking about the fact that the Spirit is going to come and dwell in them, and that at some, in some way, the coming of the Spirit to dwell in them is also going to be Jesus coming to dwell in them. He's going to elaborate on that here in just a little bit. He says in verse 21, he reminds them, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's what he's just been saying right back in verse 15. And then he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father... And I will love him and manifest myself to him. In other words, I'm going to show myself 
to those of you who love me. And Judas, not Judas Iscariot who betrayed him, a different Judas, says to him, how are you going to do that? How are you going to show yourself to us, but not show yourself to the rest of the world? How is that going to work? And notice what Jesus says in verse 23, because this is huge. Verse 23 says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is saying, everybody who loves him, everyone who obeys him, every Christian, imperfect obedience, yes, imperfect love, yes, but real. You You trust Jesus, you believe Jesus, you love Jesus, you seek to obey Jesus. Jesus says, if that's you, here's what I can tell you. My Father will love you. I will love you. And not only that, we will come and make our home, our dwelling place with you. See, we know from the Bible that the Spirit comes to dwell in every Christian, and the Bible even uses uh, temple language to talk about that, right? You've heard, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God dwelt in the midst of His people. No longer do we need a temple. The Bible says, now in Christ, God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you so that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the dwelling place of God. But what Jesus says here is it's not the Spirit separate from the Father and the Son who dwells in you, but that if the Spirit dwells in you, that means the Father and the Son also make their home, their dwelling place in you. See, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, etc. But you cannot separate them. You can't have Jesus without the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Father and not have the Son. You can't have the Spirit and not have the Father and the Son. Because He's one God. And we are His one people. And if you belong to Him, He dwells in you. Yes, the Spirit, but also the Father and also the Son. This is one of the ways that Jesus fulfills that famous promise he makes at the end of the Great Commission after he says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever I commanded you. And then he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is he with us always? Because he dwells in us by the Spirit, as does the Father. So here's the comfort that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us. That after his departure, we receive something even greater than Jesus' physical presence on earth. We receive the presence of the Spirit and of Jesus, the Son, and of the Father, making their home within us. So that we do not walk this world alone as spiritual orphans. We live in this world as temples indwelt by the one God who lives in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And yet, and yet, even greater things remain in store for us when the Spirit's presence in us as a guarantee of our inheritance will give way to the full possession of our salvation. When Jesus comes back and we see Him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this truth is deep as it is and as amazing as it is that you would help us to begin at some level to understand how significant it is that you have come to dwell in us. That you have not abandoned us, that we are not alone, that even when you feel distant from us at times, that you are as near to us as it is possible to be until the time of Christ's return. That we are never apart from you. As you've promised, you never leave us or forsake us. God, let us be comforted by your presence. God, for any who don't know you, don't have you dwelling in them, yet we pray that you would draw them to you, even now. Cause them to trust in you, to call out to you for salvation, knowing you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and you love to save. God, help us help us to be comforted by the promises of your word and the reality of your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.